Our second lesson this morning is from the Acts of the Apostles, and it's printed for you here in your liturgy. This is from a sermon that the Apostle Peter is preaching in the home of a Gentile uh, to whom he has gone to preach the gospel, basically. More about that later. His name is Cornelius. Just a little bit of context for now. Then Peter began to speak to them. I truly understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. You know the message he sent to the people of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. That message spread through Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John announced, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, how he went about doing good and healing all who are oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses to all that he did both in Judea and Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and allowed him to appear not to all people, but to us who were chosen by God as witnesses and who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one ordained by God as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Open our ears, O Lord, that we would hear the gospel, our eyes, that we may see and recognize the risen Lord Jesus Christ. May your Holy Spirit be our teacher, in Christ's name, amen. Writing on Easter, or on the topic of Easter, Rowan Williams, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, says this, and I quote, The church is not founded by Jesus of Nazareth as an institution to preserve the recollection of his deeds and words. It is the community of those who meet him as risen in the place where all the world may meet him as risen. End quote. That's a basic truth, but an important one to remember, as it reminds us that what we do here on Easter in a very focused way, is really what we are to be doing all of the time. Telling the world there is good news, really good news. And demonstrating in the patterns of our living together that the good news exceeds human categories of thinking. We have good news that laughs at the limits of zero-sum thinking. We have good news that says there is no place so dark that God's light doesn't shine in it. No neighborhood in Chicago that can't experience renewal. No sin we can commit that isn't forgiven by God on the cross of Christ. No enemies that can't be reconciled through the cross of Christ. We're going to talk a bit about some of the implications of the resurrection this morning. But first, on the way to that, I want to stop and take note of the fact 
that Jesus being raised from the dead was a shock to his disciples. Not one of them was thinking that it was going to happen. Not one of them expected it. And and perhaps that is part of what accounts for the strangeness of the encounters between the disciples and the risen Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, in our call to worship this morning, there is Jesus right there in the narrative account from John's gospel, right there in front of Mary, and yet is a stranger to Mary Magdalene. Same thing when he's walking on the road to Emmaus with two of his followers, Cleopas and his friend. Jesus is walking with them and they don't recognize him. He's a stranger to them till he breaks bread with them. Now, not all of the account encounters with the risen Lord Jesus Christ are this way, but the point seems to be that recognizing Jesus after the resurrection is one that requires new vision. In order to recognize him and know him in a new way, requires us to have a new understanding of who he is. A vision to see that the impossible, that God raised Jesus from the dead, was indeed possible, and that that reality changes human history. Their vision, literally and metaphorically, had to become accustomed to seeing the world as a different place with radically new possibilities because of Jesus' resurrection. It would have been a lot to take in. It's good for us to remember that this Easter morning, and really all mornings, that Jesus' resurrection is calling us to a new vision of what might be possible. Could it be Could it be that there's a power set loose in the world for us to take hold of and find a deeper experience of forgiveness, thus setting us free to be those who more deeply forgive and more deeply have the courage to make peace? Could it be that we can see a desperate situation with new eyes that envision a hopeful future and then bring the resources of God to bear and help bring that future to pass. I think all of us have situations in our life where we look with one set of eyes and we don't see hope. We look with a set of eyes that are renewed through encountering the risen Jesus and we see where hope can spring up into maturity. I think about that every time I work uh, as a volunteer with our homeless shelter that we work with, Breakthrough Urban Ministries. I go into the neighborhood and I don't feel hope and I meet the presence of the risen Lord Jesus Christ in the midst of that ministry and I suddenly move from not having hope to having hope. 
I mean, the reality is, is that some of Jesus' followers may have been somewhat prepared to react and respond to Jesus as a martyr. But Jesus is no martyr. Martyrs are dead, and their life may inspire. But Jesus' resurrection life goes beyond inspiration. His resurrection inaugurates the world to come in our midst. This is what the New Testament scholar N.T. Wright has in mind when he writes, Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of God's new project. A new project not to snatch people away from the earth to heaven, but to colonize earth with the life of heaven. This is, after all, what the Lord's Prayer is about. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I've begun this morning by noting that no one was expecting a risen Jesus with that glance back to Mary's encounter with him as a stranger because it's that strangeness that underlines the fact that the risen Jesus will always be a stranger to human ways of thinking, to human ways of thinking about what it means to be human, (laughs) what it means to be moral, what it means to be upright, what it means to be religious, etc. Jesus is risen from the dead as, as the one who is the first fruits of the resurrection. As that one, he is not, as one preacher has said, who the disciples expected him to be. <laughs> he is not who the disciples expected him to be. And he's not who we want him to be sometimes. And he's not who we expect him to be sometimes. Because we look to him, don't we, according to merely human ways of thinking. Or worse yet, we project upon him our own agendas. And then we proclaim to our adversaries, Jesus is on my side. The resurrected Lord calls all people to be on his side. He is on no one's side, so to speak. This is, in a way, what was going on in that encounter that I alluded to just a few moments ago from the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus is walking with Cleopas and another disciple after the crucifixion. They're on the road to Emmaus, and they don't recognize Jesus, and they say in so many words, they look at Jesus and say, Are you the only one that's not upset? Jesus, the one that we thought was going to redeem Israel, he's dead. And with him died our hopes. Aren't you upset too? (laughs) Well, you know, that interaction plays out, keeps playing out in Luke until they do recognize him in the breaking of bread. And Jesus, in so many words, says to them, you had no idea what to expect. Because I am not just the Messiah of Israel. I am the Messiah of Israel's enemies. I am the one who has come to make peace for all human beings. So there's strangeness in the encounters. And the encounters suggest that the strangeness is there to call us to admit that we must turn from our own ways of thinking about God. We must repent of our own ways 
of thinking about God. And accept that God's revelation of God's self is always going to upset normal, even and especially so-called respectable ways of human thinking. Jesus is not who we thought him to be. That's the lesson that Peter uh, was continuing to learn when he preaches that little sermon that we just read from the, the little excerpt from the sermon that we just read from the book of Acts. That's the lesson that Peter was continuing to, to learn uh, when he proclaims that there's no partiality with God. That is an astonishing statement because this sermon is being given in the home of Cornelius. This is the first time that Peter had ever set foot in the home of a Gentile person. And the only reason he goes there is because the Holy Spirit makes him go. He falls asleep, and then a, he dreams. And anybody had a food dream? Peter has a food dream to top all food dreams. Because a sheet falls down... And he's hungry, and he's asleep, and he's like quasi in that, you know, phase. am I asleep, am I not asleep? I don't know what it was like. But we are told that what's on in the revelation of the dream is, is God says to Peter, he puts all these foods in front of him that are forbidden for many Jew to eat, pork, shellfish, whatever it is. And he says, Peter, go eat those things. And Peter says, no, Lord, it is forbidden. And then the Lord says to him, what I have made clean, you do not call unclean. And Peter wakes up, what is all that about? And then all of a sudden, (laughs) the Lord tells him to go to the home of Cornelius. And he goes to Cornelius' house. And when he goes there, it is awkward. What he says to Cornelius is, you know that I am not supposed to be here. And I know that I am not supposed to be here, but the Lord has sent me. And the Lord has sent me to say, there is no partiality. There is no partiality with God. It's amazing, you know, the the Holy Spirit's interpretation of the dream to Peter is apparently this, go and eat everything. Because then Peter later says, I had this dream and I was told I could eat things I was never allowed to eat before. And here's what the conclusion that I drew from it was. I am to call no person unclean. (laughs) All the dream says is that all food is clean. But because food separated people, Peter, through the Spirit's revelation, realizes that really at the heart of the whole thing, was for him to understand that there is no partiality with God. And this is what that sermon is all about, and that's why he begins it that way. And it's interesting because he has that little line in there that the risen Lord Jesus Christ appeared not to all people, but to those who he called to be witnesses, and he says, we ate and we drank with him. We ate and we drank with him. Perhaps Peter was thinking, a little nervous, when he's going to Cornelius' house. What am I going to eat? I mean, is there going to be pork? First time he'd eaten it, if there was. 
Maybe he's thinking about what sort of food he might be served. Maybe that's why he mentions that little tidbit here about having eaten and having drunk with the Lord Jesus Christ after he was raised from the dead. Because remember, who Jesus ate and drank with was something that was often used against Jesus by the religious leaders who were not interested in being challenged as to who they were willing to eat and drink with. Perhaps Peter mentions it here as a way of saying that the same radical welcome and open hospitality that Jesus shared around the table in his ministry is now, through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the world, is now going to progress and broaden so that the community gathered around the risen Lord Jesus Christ is indeed truly a community where God's love is extended without a hint of partiality to all people. I mentioned earlier that perhaps Jesus' followers would have had an easier time adjusting to Jesus as a martyr. And even though Jesus' death looked like a martyrdom, it was not. His was not the death of a martyr, but the voluntary and sacrificial death of the Son of God for the sins of the whole world. And in his resurrection and the preaching of the resurrection, Jesus makes clear that his death is to bring a healing and reconciliation to the world, or it means nothing at all. This message is to our human imaginations as strange as it is wonderful. May our eyes turn from the Jesus that we have domesticated. May our eyes turn from the Jesus that we have used to support our view of the world and of people. And may our eyes become accustomed to Jesus as he is revealed to us in the resurrection, as the Savior not just of me and people like me, but the Savior of the whole world. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.